0: Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Hello, welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Stuart Shapiro, professor of philosophy at the Ohio State University, and he's here to talk with us about vagueness, part two. Stuart
1: Shapiro, welcome. Thank you.
0: So vagueness is a phenomenon that manifests itself in the language we speak all the time, and it's a phenomenon that uh, we associate with these borderline cases. Uh, yes. So maybe we could just start by talking about what a borderline what case is. What that is? is. Yeah. yeah.
1: So people have different views on it, but I just take this to be a, more like a stipulative definition that what I take it to be. So an object or a person is a borderline case for a given predicate if nothing about the meaning of the predicate and nothing about the facts determine whether or not the predicate applies or not. So typical vague predicates uh, would be words like tall or bald or color terms like red. So if you think of something which is sort of halfway between green and blue, would be a borderline case of green and a borderline case of blue, that nothing in the established meaning of the word green or blue, and nothing about the facts, you know, the wavelength that's emitted by it and so on, determine whether it ought to be in the green or not green. Now, of course, not everyone agrees with that definition, but uh, that's sort of the one that I work with.
0: So what if we were to say that you know there is a fact of the matter, up to this wavelength, some color is blue, and then after that wavelength...
1: And uh, we just don't know where that cutoff point is? I mean, there is a standard view on vagueness like that. It's uh, really bizarre, and it only has a few advocates. It's called epistemicism, where all of our predicates have sharp cutoffs. So on a view like that, there wouldn't be any borderline cases, at least in the sense that I've used it. So for people like that, a borderline case is a case where we don't know whether the predicate applies or not, because it's too close to the, as you say, the exact cutoff. Uh, i find views like that and i think most of us do find views like that just completely astounding that as to how it is that language could have developed which has those sharp borders in it but it is a view on the map and it has some rather smart people uh, supporting it
0: i mean the fact that we use the term blue green suggests we don't really know exactly what to call colors like this
1: yeah or Um, or rather words like bald or tall right you know that if you have somebody who's sort of halfway between being Tall, say, for a basketball player, and then someone who's clearly not tall, and then you got someone who's sort of in the middle, and you, you always, you know, you'll find a case in there where you just don't know what to say, right? Yeah, part of the puzzle for views like that is to figure out how language could have evolved. You know, what is it that accounts for these sharp borders?
0: So, at first blush, you know, when you don't sort of think about this too much, you might think that all of our concepts have sharp borders, but then when you start to think about these color examples, predicates like tall, this phenomenon starts to seem ever more pervasive. Yeah, right. Are there any concepts we use that but don't give rise to borderline cases?
1: Probably not In ordinary empirical concepts which we use to describe the world. Maybe in mathematics you get some, you know, like the concept of being a prime natural number doesn't seem to have any borderline cases. Yeah, right. We would never say, you know, this number is sort of prime. Yeah, that's right. Well, well that's only sort of part of it is having borderline cases. Sort of what makes for vagueness is where you end up with uh, what's sometimes called a principle of tolerance where small differences don't seem to matter as to whether the predicate applies. Of course, the epistemicist denies that, but the intuition is that with predicates like green and tall and bald, that small differences in the objects or the person shouldn't make any difference one way or another whether it applies or not. That's sometimes called a principle of tolerance, that the predicate's tolerant.
0: So what would be an example of uh, a tolerant predicate or a predicate being tolerant?
1: Well, let's look at say bald, right? So you imagine if, so somebody's bald and somebody has just a little bit less hair, a little bit more hair, right? it'd be hard to think well then that, that the small difference could matter.
0: Okay, right. right. So if i take somebody with a full head of hair, i pluck one hair At a time. off their head. Yeah. Nobody's going to say, yeah, if i take one hair off, i thereby make them bald.
1: Yeah, no matter where they are, just plucking out one hair can't take them from not bald to bald. Right. right. That's the thought. Yeah. Right. Of course, the epistemicist denies that, but the intuition is that that's just the way it is. So small differences don't matter, which is tolerance and large enough differences do matter, right, because otherwise you're not making distinctions at all, you know, then you're in the phenomenon of vagueness.
0: Right, right. Yeah. So if I pluck one hair off somebody's head, that's not enough to make them bald. But if I pluck, I don't know, 50,000 of hairs yeah, off of right. somebody's hair, yeah. head, that will make them bald no matter what.
1: Yeah, that's right. If you pull off all their hair, right. Or, and if, yeah. yeah, and if you do it, what sort of one hair at a time, right? Yeah. Right. So, at what point do you cross the boundary? Right. The thought is there isn't one, but yet at some point there's a difference. But it doesn't occur at any one particular point. That's the uh, sort of linguistic problem that vagueness leads to.
0: Hmm.
1: Right. Do you think
0: that's a deep problem? Like, do you think that this prevents us from, um, for example, having like a scientific theory? that language? uses yeah. vague concepts like you know if we wanted to, i don't know what you mean this like would be a, exactly like baldology scientif- or something
1: yeah, well <laughs> okay yeah so if you had like a scientific theory about bald people i thought you were thinking about a scientific or a rigorous theory of language use right that seems to be where the action is is there right
0: yeah so right? presumably that would be an issue yeah.
1: as well yeah i don't know if you you know it's hard to imagine what you know why you would want to get serious about bald and figure <laughs> out exactly you know what the term is used for other things though you know might matter and you, you know there might be reasons to sharpen it to um, try to eliminate the, or at least minimize the vagueness. Well,
0: that's an interesting thought. So, yeah, I guess that's one possible response to this phenomenon of borderline cases uh, would be to propose a sort of reform of the way we talk. Exactly, and say, right, yeah. You know what? Most of the stuff we say is pretty vague, but that's not very helpful. You know, well, what we should be doing is we should be more precise and we should replace these.
1: Maybe, you know, but on the right. other hand, maybe the vague words seem to be functioning pretty well for what purposes they have. I mean, A friend of mine, um, Crispin Wright, a well-known philosopher, uh, has an interesting uh, observation that some words, they're the sort of thing which have to be applied on the basis of casual observation. They evolve that way. So with uh, color terms, you know, so if you had to pull out a color meter every time I wanted to tell someone don't eat the red berries, you know, and I have to sort of pull out a color meter and they have to have one so you can tell exactly which wavelength we're talking about, uh, that would make the predicate a whole lot less useful. Right so given that some words should be or are applied on the basis of casual observation and it would sort of undermine the function of the term if they weren't if they were made more precise well at least that's one account of sort of how vagueness arises and it's also an argument against just replacing the language with a sharp one if that were even possible
0: Yeah it's interesting do you think that there is a trade-off between a concept being of like practical use in that way and yeah. being sort of theoretically rigorous or is something you can have a, a detailed theory about?
1: Well, the idea would be to try to come up with a detailed theory of vague terms as they are. right? But I guess an alternate program would be have kind of a revisionist one to try to do away with it. Right? Some of the early uh, logicians uh, like Frege seem to have thought that vagueness was a defect in the language, and they were envisioning a more si- rigorous scientific language which didn't have it. Pretty, I think pretty much uh, everyone, all theorists nowadays, have given up on that goal.
0: I mean, at first blush it might seem impossible that you would come up with a, like, as it were, non-vague theory of vague terms, like, you know, where you could explain the meaning of a word like green or bald in terms of words that are not like green and bald, but more like prime number.
1: That's right, yeah. Is that possible? Probably not, but, again, it's not my area, but probably not. And so we'd have to, what you might be able to do, though, is, is model it. So you can come up with a precise model of how this sort of imprecise thing functions, and then there'll be cases where you know the model doesn't quite fit but as long as you sort of get the you know a broad range of cases and make sense of them then you know then I would call that progress theoretical progress
0: so the uh, by now thousands of years old philosophical paradox that these uh, borderline cases give rise to is known as the sorites paradox so what's the sorites paradox
1: so when we talked about the principle of tolerance a few minutes ago the predicates that we're talking about have a certain tolerance that small differences don't matter Big differences do matter. And then the next observation is that small differences add up to big differences. Right. So uh, Sorites Paradox would start with a clear case of either the predicate applying or not applying. So you start with a guy who has no hair, that person's bald. And then you imagine a series of people, each one has one more hair than the one before it. So the tolerance principle would tell us that for each person in the series, if they're bald, then so's the next one. And then 30,000 people later, right, you have someone who has a full head of hair and, uh, and you don't want to be forced to conclude that that person's bald.
0: So on the one hand, if I pull one hair off somebody's head, that doesn't suffice to make them bald. If I pull 50,000 hairs off somebody's head, that does suffice to make them bald. But look, if I pull one hair off of somebody's head 50,000 times, isn't that the same as pulling 50,000 right, right. So hairs at the off end, their head?
1: So at the right. end, they're bald, right? At the beginning, they're not, right? And at least the way the semantics, the logic we have for predicates like that would tell you that at some point you have to have crossed the border. And if you haven't, then what exactly are you doing?
0: That seems to be a pretty serious problem. Uh, how do you think we should respond to this paradox?
1: Well, how do I think? Okay, so the, the main controversial premise that I would put on the table is that in the borderline area, at least in some contexts, speakers can go either way. So if you imagine a, um, like a conversational version of the Sorites paradox where you actually have your 30,000 or you like 50,000. So we have our 50,000 men lined up and you start asking somebody or a group of people for each one in the series, is, is that person bald, is that person bald? And sort of run them through the entire series. At some point, they're going to move into the borderline area and I call it open texture. The, that in the borderline area, the predicates are open textured. What that means is that at least sometimes competent speakers can go either way. So, when they eventually decide, okay, enough's enough, that guy is not bald, then they're just sort of using discretion that the language in effect allows them to have.
0: So, in other words, if we're looking at somebody who's in the middle of this process of having all their hair pulled out, I'd hate to be that person. Yeah. Well, do we want to say it can be correct both to say they're bald and to say they're not bald?
1: In different contexts. By the way, my version of it is kinder. I mean, I have 50,000 different men, and you have one man who has his hair pulled out, (laughs) right? right? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, that's the idea of open texture. It isn't that they're bald and not bald at the same time. So, it's very broadly speaking a contextualist view. So, people are only bald or not bald, at least in the borderline region, in a given context, in a given conversation. So, if they're declared bald in a conversation and they get away and no one objects to it, then they are bald in that conversation. So, the extensions themselves are not determined by the linguistic facts in the world, but also by the state of a conversation.
0: So maybe we could think of an example of this. Like what would be a conversation that you and I could have where somebody with, let's say, 25,000,
1: I don't know if this is the right, right the number, Twenty no, five 25,000. it probably, probably isn't. I keep, I keep forgetting <laughs> to check to see how many hairs a typical person has. But.
0: Is, what would be an example of a yeah. context where somebody with 25,000 hairs in their head counts as bald and another conversational context where they count as not bald?
1: Well, I mean, it would be rather artificial, of course. But, you know, suppose, you know, we're just sitting around chatting about who, which of our friends are bald. And he say, well, what about Jack? You know, so Jack doesn't have any. You know, and he say, yeah, he's bald. And then you look at Joe, who has a full head of hair. He's not. So what about Steve, who's one of these middle guys? And so then he says, yeah, let's call him bald. And then everyone else in the conversation says, you know, that no one objects to that in that conversation, then that person would be bald. I mean, that's the nature of open texture. It could go either way. And so which would imply that sometimes it's going to go one way, or at least it could go one way, and sometimes we'd go the other way.
0: Does that allow for the possibility that any given conversation, it might be stipulated that somebody really with a lot of hair, but maybe just missing a tiny bit of hair, counts as bold?
1: In, in principle. I mean, that sort of gets into delicate issues that I don't know if I've sort of worked out the details of. There, the official line is that there'll be a range of cases where the speakers don't have any choice uh, at the two ends of the series. And then the uh, open texture would only kick in in the middle. Now, of course, then there's another issue as to where exactly open texture kicks in, but that's just another type of vagueness. It's the vagueness in the theory itself, right? So who's the first borderline bald guy, right, in the series, right? I mean, that is itself a vague matter. Sometimes that's called higher-order vagueness. And any account of vagueness is going to have to deal with a phenomenon like that.
0: Okay, right. So to give an example of second-order vagueness, just as you can ask the question, how many pulled-out hairs does it take to make a non-bald person bald, you can also ask how many uh, pulled-out hairs does it take to make a non-bald person, neither non-bald nor yeah. definitely
1: bald, neither bald nor definitely, neither definitely bald nor definitely not bald. Yeah, that's again, that's just another vague, uh, vague question, and any decent theory of vagueness is going to have to deal with that phenomenon. And for the sake of consistency, in roughly, in essentially the same way, so they'd have to be open texture there. Yeah, this is starting to seem really mind-boggling. We have. Mm-hmm. It-
0: However many orders of vigness, in addition to that, the first order of vigness was hard enough.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's life. You know, language is messy. Now, the open-text review doesn't mean that anybody at any time can go either way. So in a given conversation, if you call a guy bald, then you can't, at least for the duration of that conversation, at least until it's retracted, uh, you can't go on and say he's not bald, right? Because that would offend against logic. If you declare somebody to be bald and you imagine somebody who has a little bit less hair, right? Then that person has to be bald too. That just goes with the meaning of the word bald. That if somebody's bald, then somebody who's balder is also bald. More controversially, if somebody only has slightly more hair, then that person also uh, has to be declared bald in that, or if they were asked, that person would have to be declared bald in that conversation, or you'd have to retract the first judgment. So the thing about open texture is that it's not sort of, there's nothing permanent about it. It's just for the sake of that conversation, and even then it could be uh, retracted later.
0: An example of retracting would be something like, uh, you know, you and I are talking, and earlier we decided that, you know, Jeff was bald, and now one of us says, you know what, I'm not sure Jeff is really bald, actually. When you compare him to, like, Bill, Bill is totally bald. Uh, That's
1: right. The, The conversation shifts, and then you can take it back.
0: So basically, your approach to the Sorites paradox, then, is to use this fact that, the standards for what counts as bald, you know, can change both from conversation to conversation, and in these cases of retraction, even within a single conversation.
1: Correct, yeah. Um,
0: so how can we use this fact, this sort of uh, context sensitivity mm-hmm. of vague language to get out of the Sorites paradox? Yes,
1: I mean, how do we solve the Sorites paradox itself? Yeah, I thought you were asking me about a closely related question. I guess that, you know, we need to answer that one too, as to how this actually works in practice. And I, I rely on a model, there's actually few of them that have been developed by philosophers and linguists for conversational flow or for the uh, kinematics of conversation. It, or at least one version of it is traced to the philosopher David Lewis where you postulate this phenomenon called the conversational score, which consists of the um, certain propositions and other things that are sort of held in common by everyone in a conversation. And I invoke the notion of conversational score to keep track of sort of which borderline cases have been called in the course of a given conversation. The actual solution of the sorieties paradox is going to depend on, um, well, we don't have this sort of standard type of logical situation that we normally have where we have every sentence is either true or false. We have kind of a, sometimes called a three-valued logic, so. But anyway, there's a solution to the sorieties that's sort of built into the notion of conversational score and, you know, in the three-valued logic, you know, where we have true, false, and neither.
0: I mean, so presumably the way this works is as we progress hair by hair along this Mm -hmm. sequence of, you know, degrees of, well, having hair, at some point the conversational context becomes such that the standards for baldness have changed, and that's why we got what when we were looking at it from this like perspective, divorced from context, seemed like contradictory results. But actually, when you account for the, the shift in conversational context, it's no longer contradictory. Is that sort of the that's, general
1: idea? That's the idea, yeah. or at least you don't have to look at it that way. And it doesn't even have to conflict with the principle of tolerance. Right? Mm-hmm. So let's imagine sort of this forced march, uh, sometimes called a forced march sororities. We actually run a, either a subject or a group of subjects through a sorority series. So we have twenty thousand men lined up, and uh, the first one's totally bald, and the last one, each one just has one more hair than the others and we run our uh, subjects through the series. We ask them about the first guy, the second guy, and so on. Have to be patient, it can take a while. Being competent speakers, they're not gonna run through the entire series and call the uh, last guy bald, because he clearly isn't. So at some point, they're gonna jump, I call it, right, and say, no, that guy's not bald, or borderline bald, or they'll say something other than that he's bald. Then we can wonder about the guy before. right? So as I'm modeling this, what happens is that once they jump and they call somebody not bald, they'd also be retracting a few more of their previous pronouncements. So those would come off the record. Right. Or to put it a little more precisely, I should have said that in the beginning, when they get in the borderline area and they start calling people bald as they're marching through the borderline area, that information goes on the record. You know, 9,772 is bald, number 9,773 is bald. I suppose that that's the point where they say enough's enough and they jump and they say, no, that next guy isn't. Then we ask about the one before it. I conjecture that at that point, that comes off the record, as do a few more before that. Right? So tolerance is always uh, enforced throughout the conversation because the idea is whenever they, it looks like they're violating it, what they're doing is they're retracting some of their previous judgments.
0: I see. So you want to reconcile the fact that small differences don't matter with the fact that small differences add up somehow the big differences yeah
1: which do matter which do
0: matter yeah via this idea that as a conversation progresses we can retract some of our previous
1: judgments right and i conjecture we do i mean that's an empirical claim and that would have to be backed up with empirical research with ordinary speakers as to what they do Hmm. either that or they violate tolerance i mean you know logically there aren't too many options there you sort of run them up to the series until they jump and then look up the case before if they're going to stick to their previous judgment then they violated tolerance because now that small difference does matter. And if they retract it, then they can maintain tolerance.
0: Okay, so you mentioned that it's an empirical matter whether we actually do do this. Is there like a, a common situation we can imagine in which this happens where, you know, we think about it and say, oh, yeah, actually, in that situation, I think I would retract my previous claims. I mean, you know, because in this bald case, like whoever looks at a row of 50,000 people. That's right. When it is it
1: ever come yeah, I can't think of any like that. And they, part of the reason why I can't think of any is that people try to be consistent in their judgments. So if they actually would explicitly retract it, right? So I'm claiming that it's more like an implicit retraction, right? And, and it's not really an, imp- yeah. I mean, at first I thought it was an empirical claim, but it really isn't. I mean, this is really the only way that they can maintain tolerance is by uh, retracting the previous judgment, right? So if you sort of push comes to shove you just to ask the subjects, well, look, what's going on here? What do you want to say about this previous judgment you made? They have two choices. They can say, I was wrong, or I take it back, which would be to retract it. Uh, or they could say that, nope, I stick to it, in which case they've violated tolerance. Although I do think there are situations where tolerance is violated. You know. So it isn't like tolerance is somehow built into the meaning, and if you violate it, then you're uh, somehow linguistically incompetent.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So there are some cases then where... Yeah. Making one tiny change does change our, our judgment about whether the thing is yeah, the relevant kind of Yeah, it's kind of a
1: silly example, but Mark Sainsbury has a, he describes a paint shop, right? So you go into a paint shop and they've got all the red paints on one shelf and all the orange paints on another one. You know, the red one is marked red and the orange shelf is marked orange. And you sort of pull the owner out and say, look, you made a mistake here. I can't. You know, the difference between the last red one and the first orange one is so small that why are you drawing that distinction there? Right, that seems kind of silly. It looks like it's okay to draw the distinction and to stick to it just because of the nature of the paint shop, right?
0: Yeah, it also mm-hmm. seems to be, you know, if you look at... So this is sort of a psychological experiment that you could do on yourself if you wanted to. If you look at, you know, the progression of red to orange in like two rows versus three rows just arranged on a, on that a sort of piece thing. of paper, right. it often happens that where you decide to end the one row of colors and start a new line... Ends up looking to you like that's where the cutoff is.
1: Right. Or if it starts to look to you where that's where it should be, that's different, right? But if you say, yeah, I mean, obviously we've got to put the cutoff somewhere. Yeah. A uh, friend of mine, uh, Diana Raffman, has actually done some research on this with some psychologists as to the use of color terms. Uh, you know, so they actually would run people through a soriety series and then see how they react to it.
0: So some people have wanted to argue, this came up, for example, in our part one episode on vagueness with Robert von Roy, that. Some people want to say, when confronted with a borderline case, that the thing both has and doesn't have the relevant property, that you know, a person who is, I don't know, 5' you 11' know, is both tall and not tall. So what do you think about that intuition? Is that, are those people just sort of speaking metaphorically, or, you know, well, or do they really it, think both well, things?
1: Obviously, yeah. there are models for it. In some ways, the models for it, are in some cases, are kind of, I don't know what the right word is, dual to the three-valued ones. So there isn't much difference formally between being both A and not A and being neither A nor not A. It's just a third status that things could have. It does sound weird to my mind to say P and not P because it just seems to me part of the word, meaning of the word not that it excludes it. But not everybody has that intuition. And logicians can develop uh, logics that do all kinds of interesting things.
0: The idea that it can be both true and false in some sense that I am bald raises the possibility of a logic that allows for this.
1: Yes, that's right. And there are such logics. Well, actually, better, there are such semantics. I mean, true and false are sort of semantic-y terms, but what you want is that a sentence and its contradictory opposite, A and not A, somehow don't together entail everything. So
0: some people have tried to draw a connection between the Sorites paradox and another paradox in philosophy called the liar paradox, because that seems to be another case where some people want to say you can have a statement that's both true and false. Yeah, it
1: looks like we're sort of being pushed in that direction. So the idea would be, well, we think about sort of how a predicate for the word truth, the truth predicate or the word true functions. It seems intuitive that if a sentence is true, then you can infer the sentence and vice versa. Right? If you have a sentence, then you can infer from it to the truth of the sentence. And then you consider a liar sentence with some kind of self-reference, a sentence which says of itself that it's not true and you sort of run through the logic of it, and you're sort of forced to conclude that the sentence is both true and not true. So that's what's known as the liar paradox, and um, some people have thought there's a connection between that and vagueness, and especially the counts of vagueness we talked about earlier, which would have it that the borderline sentences are both true and not true. So Harry's bald and Harry's not bald, right, for borderline cases. So we have to somehow make sense of that, And, and the liar paradox is another case where at least one might try to make sense of a sentence being both true and not true.
0: Yeah, so for example, if I say, uh, what I'm saying to you right now is
1: false, false. Or is not true. Yeah, that's right.
0: Then I get into this case where, well, if the sentence is true, then it's false. And if the sentence is false, then it's yeah, true. Yeah, so
1: you look and see what right. it's, suppose it's true. Well, what's it say? Well, it says that it's not true. So therefore, I guess it's not true. Oh, but we assumed it was. All right, so I guess it's not true. But what's it say? It says that it's not true. So it sounds like it's true. Right. right.
0: Now, can you use this idea that we've been talking about
1: Open texture.
0: Yeah, the idea of open texture, the idea that uh, the standards for what counts as you know bald or tall or whatever and uh, can change in the course of a conversation.
1: Right. So then the standards of what counts as true, right? That would be the idea. Oh, I see. So it's something like that. Yeah. There's no yeah. true. There's like true-ish or something. <laughs> or true in it. Well, true in a given context. So yeah. I'm not sure that this is going to make sense. It's a rather speculative idea that I have and it may pan out or may not. I kind of suspect it won't. Is to take the open texture idea. So with vagueness, as I see it, in the borderline area, competent speakers can go either way. The idea would be that if you're in a case like the liar, where you're sort of pushed in both directions, then again, there competent speakers can go either way. So the idea would be to apply the open texture idea to not only cases which are left open by language, but the cases where the rules of language use seem to be pushing you in opposite directions.
0: Is there like retraction happening in the case of there could be the liar
1: sentence? Yeah, and the So suppose somebody said something like, I mean, liar sentences can turn up. I mean, obviously no one's going to utter a liar sentence as such in a real conversation because there isn't much point to it. I mean, unless they're a philosopher and they want to make trouble. But it could come up unexpectedly. You know, so if I were to say, uh, oh, yeah, you know, we're talking about somebody that I don't like and I say half of what he says is true. And you look at the stuff he says and and he said, you know, a bunch of things which are clearly true and a bunch of things which are clearly false. And then one more thing, namely that uh, Shapiro makes mistakes all the time. Right, so then it looks like you might be stuck with kind of a liar-type situation, uh, inadvertently, so to speak. Right. So when something like that comes up, then the open texture idea, if it makes any sense, would be that if somebody utters a sentence like that, it goes on the record, and then it's true. And then if you ask later on if it's true, then that'll force you to retract it. And then you say, okay, so it's not true, and if you ask about that, then that'll force you to retract that. Right. So there's no stability with liar-type sentences. Any attempt to reflect on it and give the sentence itself a truth value is going to force you to retract what you said before. I'm not sure that this is going to make any sense. And, I'm sh- and there I'm actually pretty confident you're not going to find much empirical data to support it. Hmm. Right? The case of vagueness, maybe. I mean, I can sort of imagine that, you know, sort of language actually functioning that way. So this would be more like a model for how it could function rather than a, a claim that the truth predicate actually does work this way.
0: Stuart Shapiro? Thank you for uh, what was a uh, delightful interview, and uh, I'm sure that's a claim that I will not have to retract later.
1: (laughs) Right. I hope not.
0: (laughs) If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.